We're in Daniel chapter 6. The last five times I've been up here, we've been in Daniel 1 through 5. And uh, today we're going to break down probably one of the most uh, famous passages in the Bible, a passage that whether you're a Christian or not, you've probably heard of, and that's Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, we're going to read the passage throughout the sermon. We'll, we'll kind of chunk it up. and So we're just going to start with verses 1 through 4. So while you are uh, turning there, I just want to remind you that, that Daniel, the book of Daniel, what we have said is, is the theme is that God is sovereign always. So whether there's a president that you like or you don't like, whether you get a promotion at work or, or like Daniel, you're thrown in a pit of lions, God is still sovereign. So let's read verses 1 through 4, um, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump in. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account, so that, that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all of the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set, over, to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Let's pray and then we'll break down this section. Dear Lord, God, again, we come to another chapter in Daniel where we see how you are sovereign. And God, we are so thankful that you are sovereign and that you are good. God, as we leave here and we go to our, our families and our jobs and, our, and just the spheres of influence that you've put us in, help us in everything to trust that you are sovereign. God, as, as we meet here, we think of churches around Columbus, around Westerville, uh, and we just pray for them. We pray that they would faithfully be preaching the gospel. God, we pray for our church. We pray that we too would be faithfully preaching the gospel. And Lord, as we look at a man who, because of his faithfulness, faced immense persecution, help us to be encouraged to know that even when we face persecution for our beliefs. God, you are present, you care, you are good, and you preside over all of it. Be with me as I preach. Uh, if there's any uh, coherentness in this at all, it is because of you. Lord, let this be your words. We love you, God. Amen. All right. So Daniel 4, or not Daniel 4, Daniel 6, verses 1 through 4. Uh, we're introduced to a new king. So Daniel chapter 1 through 4, we have Nebuchadnezzar. And then in Daniel 5, we meet Belshazzar. And now we see that uh, King Darius has taken the throne. And this is because Persia had conquered Babylon. So if you know your history, uh, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar is kind of like probably one of the most famous kings of Babylon. And then Persia comes in and uh, Darius becomes king. And so he's not as, Darius isn't as major of a focus as you see uh, the kings in, in some of the previous chapters. 
but it's still important to know who this guy is. And so I did a lot of reading, and I'm, I'm here to tell you that I, I, I really can't shed much light on it. We know that there were a lot of different kings in Persia that were named Darius. You have Darius the Great, Darius the Second, Darius the Third. He's none of those. They all came after Cyrus. And, and if you look at most uh, textbooks, you'll see that um, the first king, or the, or the king of Persia when, when Babylon was conquered was Cyrus. So I, I was just reading, and I mean, I, I probably had like 50,000 tabs open on my computer at this point. But um, I, I'm not, I, I can't come and, and tell you that there's like one theory that's definitely the number one theory or, or whatever. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of people that seem to match this guy's description. Darius was a pretty common name. You could have go by a certain title and also be called Darius in Persia. And so what I, what I want to submit to you for this, this first section is, is as Christians at this church, we believe that the Bible is inerrant, that it is without error. And so as we read this, it's cool to, to try to figure out like who this Darius is, who exactly it is. If you want to spend time reading the 30,000 different theories, that's fine. If you want to talk to me after and figure out the one that I, I felt like made the most sense, that's cool too. But it's okay to read a section in the Bible and say, the, we trust the Bible is inerrant. We trust the Bible is without error. And so the, the theological point, the main point that, that we've seen in 1 through 5 and now in chapter 6, that God is sovereign over whoever is king, that, that's still there, right? That's still there. And so, uh, like I said, w- one of the main reasons that we attest to the Bible's inerrancy and, and Rob actually talked about this last week too. We, we do have a book in the back. I don't remember the title of it, but um, we can, we can, if you're curious, we can find it after. Uh, that talks about why we affirm the Bible is inerrant, why we affirm the Bible is true. And it's, it's really good. But one of the main reasons is we believe that our, our God, that the God that we worship is a God who is incapable of error. He cannot make a mistake. He is perfect in every way. And and he willed and he wanted these 66 books to, to be put together in a certain way. And so if we are then to claim that there's error within these books, then there's error in what God wills, and then God would not be perfect. And, and we, we don't believe that. And so the main point I'm trying to nail home is it's okay to read this and say, I'm not 100% sure who Darius is. I can't nail him down on a timeline or, or something, but we know that the Bible has it right. So put a pin in that, we can move on. Um, and really quick, I don't want to skip over this. That, that theological point, right, that's, that's the key, that God is sovereign over whoever's king. Even Nebuchadnezzar attests to that in chapter 4. We talked about that when we were in chapter 4, but I just want to read you Nebuchadnezzar's own words. He says, all the, this is chapter 4, verse 35 of Daniel, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So even Nebuchadnezzar submits to the fact that God, that we, compared to God, are insignificant. God is in control. God sets people up. God um, puts people down. If a king rises up, it is because of God. So, uh, moving on, uh, we... we we affirm that God allowed Darius to rise up, and now we see in uh, verses 1 through 4 that Daniel is rising up again. Under Nebuchadnezzar, he had gotten pretty high within the kingdom because of his faithfulness to God, and, and Nebuchadnezzar saw that. And then he's kind of forgotten for a little bit. 
Uh, in chapter 5, he's brought before the king, and, and the king had to be reminded who Daniel was. But then we see under Darius, he is rising up within the province of Persia. So Darius is setting up these satraps, and Persia was broken into different provinces. If you know your history, you'll know that Persia at one point was this massive empire. I mean, it covered a massive amount of land. And it is being broken up into provinces. And Darius is setting satraps. Think, this isn't a perfect analogy, but just think about like the United States of America. We have states. There's governors of each state. So there's these satraps being set up, and Daniel was appointed to be above them. So each province has a leader. Daniel is handpicked, one of three, to be above them. And out of those three, Daniel is considered the best. He is about to... The, the, the operations of the kingdom, he's not going to be king, but the operations of Persia are going, especially in these provinces, are going to be handed over to Daniel. And we see this consistently through the book of Daniel. All we've seen from 1 through 6 is Daniel rising up and doing his job well, doing what he is supposed to do well. In, in verse uh, 3, it says that, Daniel became distinguished, right? He was distinguished above all. And that, that applies to us too. We too, as, as, as people, as Christians, people created by God, we too are supposed to be distinguished people. We are supposed to do whatever God has given us to do. We are supposed to do it well. Whether you're a pastor, CEO, engineer, teacher, mom, dad, coach, whatever it is, wherever you are in life, do it well. Proverbs 21, 25 says, um, the desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hand refuses labor. And in Genesis 2, 15, we see the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Even before the fall, work was something that was created that was good. It was a good thing, and we're supposed to do it well, right? We're not supposed to be lazy sluggards. But how does this happen? How do we rise up and become distinguished like Daniel was. I can tell you that this is not going to be one of those sermons where I give you like five tools to success or not some like self-help counsel session or like how can you become the best at your job or uh, this isn't one of my like pump up pregame speeches that I do for one of my teams. We're just going to look back at the text and see. We're going to answer that question. Verse 3 tells us that it was because of an excellent spirit. Daniel had an excellent spirit within him. And I would say that was the Holy Spirit. And you might be sitting there, and if you're familiar with church history, or if you're familiar with the Bible, you would say, well, hold on, the time of Pentecost hadn't come. And if you're unfamiliar with that, Christ came, well after Daniel, Christ came, and through his life and his death on the cross, we were able, his, his righteousness was imputed to us. And because of that, the Holy Spirit could come and dwell within us, right? We, we were not, in the past, the Holy Spirit would come, and I'm getting most of this out of, uh, if you, if you want to read it for yourself, Wayne, I'm not, I'm not as, as smart as Wayne Grudem, I'm just going to be honest with you. So Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, um, pages 636 and 637, if you happen to have that book, go there, read this, and, and he explains it really well. But in the past, in the Old Testament, most of the time, the Holy Spirit would come and it would rest upon someone for a time and empower you to do some task that God had given you. And then, and then it would depart. 
But there are four people in the Old Testament that are described as the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. We, we hear this about Ezekiel, Micah, Joshua, and Daniel. And, and we see this all throughout the book of Daniel. Why is this important? So Grudem further states in this uh, section of his book, and I'd agree with this, even in the cases where the Holy Spirit, um, even, even with these cases, right, even with these cases of Ezekiel, Daniel, so on and so forth, the Holy Spirit had yet to fully come. The way that it's described in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. So I'll just read that for you if you're not familiar. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you, that, that I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So even with these cases of Daniel, who are described to have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit had not come as the way it was fully intended to after Christ's death and, and, and resurrection and, and after the cross and then Pentecost. And so if Daniel is a shadow, how much more distinguished lives can we live that we get to experience the Holy Spirit fully as God intended? Right? How much more distinguished can we, can we live? Daniel's the shadow of, of, of what we can be, but not because of us not because of our actions or our willpower or how we were made, but because of Christ who paved the way for the Holy Spirit to fully come into our lives. However, it's not enough to be distinguished, but we are called to be distinguished with a purpose. We're not supposed to just be really good at our jobs and end it there, but we're supposed to be distinguished with a purpose. Matthew Henry says in his commentary, it is for the glory of God when those who profess religion conduct themselves so that their most watchful enemies may find no occasion for blaming them, save only in matters of their God, in which they walk according to their conscience. It's a good thing to live distinguished lives. However, this cannot happen aimlessly. There has to be a purpose. And as Christians, the purpose must be God's glory. We live distinguished lives for God's glory. We wouldn't be acting through the Holy Spirit if it, were, if it were something else. The Holy Spirit wouldn't be acting through us to, for our pride or our um, notoriety or status, right? It acts through us for the glory of God. But as we live these Spirit-filled lives and wherever we're placed, whether, whatever, whatever you do, wherever you're placed, as we live these distinguished Spirit-filled lives on mission for God, there are going to be times where we're tempted to compromise our faith because some form of persecution has been set before us. There's going to be times where we are tempted to compromise our faith, our status, for, to, to keep our status, because there's some form of persecution set before us. And, and we see this in the next part of the passage. So I'm going to read verses 5 through 9, Daniel 6, 5 through 9. Then these men said, we, so again, just to remind you, Daniel, Daniel 6, 1 through 4, he's working his way up and the king is about to set him over the kingdom. So um, then these men, right, they're talking about the other satraps. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection 
with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish this injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. These men see Daniel's life and they're coming after him. They're jealous. They're jealous of what he's gotten, the favor he's gotten from King Darius, but they can't come at him because of his actions. They come at him because of his faith. That's the only way that they're going to get him. That's one of the reasons we're called to live through God's grace, through the Spirit, these, these distinguished lives like Daniel. That when persecution comes, the only way that we're going to get fired from our jobs. It's not because of our lazy performance, but because of our faith. It's the only way we can get God. I don't know if that's proper English, but um, let's read Philippians 2, 14 through 15. So Paul is writing to a church in, in Philippi, Christians in Philippi. This is way after Daniel, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible. This is way after Daniel, but we're still, it still applies, right? The Bible is one book. Um, do all these things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. See, Daniel in Persia, and when, he, when it was also, also when it was Babylon, is living in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. These Christians at Philippi are living in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, and we are living in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. In fact, until, like it talks about in Ezekiel, we, our, our old self is, is put to death, and through God's grace, we're given a new self. We're part of this twisted and crooked generation, right? We are evil until, through God's grace, we're able to put our faith in Christ. And as a light in this crooked and twisted generation, two things are going to happen. In our life, usually, we see light do one of two things. It either attracts or it deters. It either attracts or it deters. If I'm inevitably, almost every single morning, waking up, uh, I, I usually go pound out a run or something. I get back and I push it way too close and I'm running late for work. Inevitably, I can't find my keys. I wish I could blame it on Kai or my wife, but it's my fault. Um, I never put them where I'm supposed to put them. In fact, my wife tells me to hang them up on the hooks pretty much every day, but I don't. Um, and I'm thankful that I have light in that moment because I can flip the lights on or I can pull my flashlight out and I can find my keys. It's, a, it's an attractive thing. I like light in that moment. My son, when he is being put to sleep at night, a lot of times will be like, Dad, 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 I can't see. And he'll, he'll, even though he can see, and he wants the hall light turned on because it, it comforts him. It's a good thing. Light can also deter. Uh, if I wake up in the middle of the night because someone flipped the lights on, I throw the covers over my face. I'm like, oh man, I, I don't want this. Uh, in my neighborhood, um, there's this group of guys called the Kia Boys. They go around, it's like 14 to 15 year olds, they boost cars. Uh, 
I'm thankful I have a light on my Porsche that I can flip on because hopefully that will keep them away from boosting my cars. Um, but the point is, light can either attract or deter. And in this, in this very passage, you see that. The king likes Daniel. The king is attracted to the way Daniel works. In fact, he's going to set the whole kingdom under Daniel. However, on the flip side, these satraps and officials don't, don't like Daniel, don't like the light that he is in this twisted and crooked generation, and they, they want to go get him. When we live these distinguished lives, like it says in Daniel, or these blameless and innocent lives, like it says in Philippians, and we don't do this perfectly, right? But when we pursue that through God's grace, we are going to face persecution. It's going to happen. That is a promise. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's the promise. I'm not here to tell you that if you become a Christian, your life is easy. That's not the promise. Now, your life is wildly more fulfilled, wildly more satisfied. You have, way, you have a lot more joy and, and satisfaction because you are worshiping who you were created to worship. You are no longer denying the existence of a God that is so real. But it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But our persecution doesn't come from our sinfulness, but our faith. Right? Persecution doesn't come from our sinfulness, but our faith. There's this meme I see sometimes. I've seen a couple people share it. I'm not really on social media. Every once in a while I get on my Facebook. and um, There's this picture. And I, I'm going to butcher this, but it's like some dude, and he's like laying in bed, and he's, like, he's eating pizza or something. Clock says like 2 a.m., and there's a little thought bubble, and he's like, why am I so persecuted? And then like some dude's walking by, and he's like, bro, you don't go to bed on time, you eat unhealthy, you don't budget, you're not persecuted, you make bad decisions. So it's funny me, but the point is, if we're overspending, our debt is not from persecution. It's from sin. If we're quick to anger and we're constantly getting in fights, our, our quarrels are not from persecution. That's from sin. If I'm lazy and unreliable and I get fired from my job at work, that's not persecution. That's from our sin. Those are consequences of our sin. My prayer for you and me, what I, what I was really convicted about is going through this. My prayer for, for all of us in here is that through God's grace, through the gift of the Spirit, our lives look like Daniel. And while we're not perf perfect, we can only be persecuted for our faith. The only way people are going to get us is for our faith. When we're at work, we are diligent, hard-working people. But if we get fired, it's, be, it's because we have lived uncompromised lives and we are persecuted for our faith, not because of our sinfulness. So we've already discussed what persecution is, what it, what, what, what it is, and what it is not. And we've already talked about that persecution's coming. If we desire to live godly lives, it's coming. So what does it look like? Doesn't always, it's not always, in fact, I can almost, I don't know, I can almost guarantee it's not going to look like being thrown in a pit of lions. All right? I don't know. I don't know the future. But just a couple ways that um, popped into my head when I was reading through this. Maybe it's personal. Maybe you are 
um, maybe maybe your family or, or people close to you don't agree or or ascribe to what the Bible says, and it's not even just a disagreement, but they they really they attack it, and you face persecution from people within your life. Uh, maybe it's physical. We've heard tons of stories of Christians that are on the front lines, um, and if you follow, I get emails from like Voice of the Martyrs, and, and you hear stories about Christians who are just being persecuted physically on the front lines for their faith. It could be financial. Um, I know a guy who, who runs a ministry, and he, he, we were just talking, and he gets funding um, from di- a lot of different areas, and, and one of them was United Way, and they have this diversity requirement for his board, and one of that is affirming LGBTQ leaders on the board. So for like years, he had um, written just a, a religious exemption and, and not been required to have that, and then someone else um, took control, and it was like a day before they were sp- supposed to start their ministry, a day before they were supposed to get the funding from this place, and, and they just pulled it right away, just said, we're not giving it to you. Maybe it's corporate. You get a memo from work, and, and you are supposed to affirm things that you cannot affirm, and you lose your job because of it. Or it, c- it could be from the government, like Daniel's facing here, right? Daniel is facing a signed uh, document from the king that is... Um, causing persecution in his life. Whatever it is, as Christians trying to follow God, we are going to face persecution. We're going to face it in in different ways. And so what do we do when it comes? The promise is it's coming. So what do we do when it comes? How do we persevere when persecution or trials come? Let's look at verses 10 through 13. We're going to read those. And I think we'll see a really clear answer. Run to God. Go to God. Let's read verses 10 through 13. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had uh, windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. As he had done, pre- as he had done previously, then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast in the den of lions? And the king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. These men wanted to get him, and now they got him. See, for Daniel, 30 days of not going to God wasn't something he could stomach. In fact, this injunction, even though we know that they were doing it to get him, the point of the injunction was to Take everyone's eyes off whatever they worship. Remember, Babylon was this very diverse kingdom. Persia has just taken it over, so there's a lot of diversity within Persia as well. And it was to get their eyes off whatever they worship and and look at the king. And instead, this causes Daniel to do the opposite. Daniel runs to God instead of running away from him. And we have to ask ourselves, how would we respond? 
does 30 days affect you? If we, uh, this isn't a statement on whoever's in, in charge of America right now, political opinion. This is, I'm just saying, hypothetically, if we were to wake up tomorrow and there was like a new law passed, I call it the Unity Act or something, and the point of it was to ban religion for 30 days and unify people on like secularism. And we, we don't have time to get into the discussion of secularism being its own religion, but we can talk about that later. Um, but ban religion, 30 days, everyone's focused on secularism to unite the country, right? We have to ask our question, does 30 days affect you? Would people know it will affect you? And would people know exactly how to get you? So does it affect you? Would people know it's going to affect you? Would people wake up and be like, oh man, I know Ben. He's he's a Christian. This is this is going to be bad for him. And would people know exactly how to get you? Look at Daniel. These guys made this law because they knew it would affect him, because they knew he wouldn't run away from God, and they knew exactly how and when to get him. I think this is a gentle reminder to us. I'm not saying this to make anyone feel bad. It was convicting to myself. It's just this gentle reminder that we're called to openly be Christians. This isn't something where we take our families and we huddle up and we're, we're in our homes and the world is against us and, and we just do it ourselves and, and we don't, we're, not, we're not lights, right? We're, we're called, that verse in Philippians, we're called to shine. We're called to shine in this generation. I think it's just this reminder. that we are supposed to shine. If, in, if this 30 day comes, if this 30 days come, I really do hope that someone would know exactly how to get me. It was convicting as I read that. I just want to submit that to you. But in fact, we know it's not an if, it's a when. It might not be a 30 days of no prayer. It might not be a uh, if you pray to God, you're thrown in alliance. And it might be as simple as saying no to something everyone else is doing. It could be, it could be as simple as that. Saying no to some, something that everyone else is going to do. So if we know it's coming, what do we do when that happens? Run to God. Daniel goes to God consistently. He prays to God. The first thing he does is he goes back and he prays. Prayer is wildly important. We are able to make petition to the God, right? The theme of Daniel, God is sovereign always. The God who is sovereign over this situation in your life, whatever it is, whatever persecution you may face, have faced, or are facing right now, God is sovereign over it. Pray to him. Go to him. But then this part blew my mind, and it should blow yours too. What, is, what does it say Daniel prays? He gives thanks to God. He thanks him. This is a guy who's been taken from his home. He's been brought to a new land. He's, he's been faithful, regardless of the consequence. He, he seems to be largely, largely responsible for the prospering of Babel, first Babylon and, and now Persia. And the thanks he gets is, if you worship God, you're getting thrown in a pit of lions. But he thanks God. See, Daniel understands the words that will be written way after him. He hasn't read them, but he understands the concept. The words written in James 1, 2 through 4. I'll read it for you. 
It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, Daniel understands this. That's why he thanks God. He understands that this steadfastness, that him being complete, lacking nothing, isn't something he can do on his own. But it's only through the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit, and going to God, and through God's grace. And these trials, this persecution, is forcing him to go and go and go to God. And he understands that. See, his comfort isn't in whatever that in whatever we often put our hope in. Daniel's hope and comfort is in God. He opens his windows towards Jerusalem and prays because he still has faith after all of these years. He's over 90 years old by now. After all these years, he still has faith that God is going to restore his people. He doesn't know exactly what it's going to look like. He doesn't know what it's going to look like in, in, uh, in Christ, but he still has faith. He still trusts God. And the constant testing of his faith has led to a man who doesn't panic, but goes to God. You see, he couldn't be steadfast. He couldn't be what this verse describes if it wasn't for God's grace. But then these trials that he faced pushes him towards God's grace. And he's thankful for that because he knows at the end of the day, that's the best thing. And if we're going to be like this, again, through God's grace. Daniel's not a perfect guy. I'm not trying to set Daniel up on this pedestal. He's sinful, a sinful human like us. But if we are going to have the actions of Daniel that we only get graciously through God, it can't be a temporary thing. We can't expect to be a Daniel in the midst of persecution if you're not a Daniel when things are comfortable. If we're not a Daniel when things are comfortable, if we're not consistently going to God in prayer, thanking Him when things are easy, we're not going to do it when things are hard. I have this buddy that I ran with. Um, I wasn't good, so I'm not going to use myself for this analogy, but my friend was. And he consistently showed up to races prepared. He did the miles consistently. I mean, he was awesome. Except for this one spring season of track. Our freshman year, this guy set a New Year's resolution to eat the height of the Empire State Building in Twizzlers. So he looked up how high the Empire State Building was, and his New Year's resolution was to eat that height in the length of Twizzlers. So every day, I'd go in his room, and he'd have those like two-pound bags of Twizzlers open, and he'd be about halfway through it. He also, I mean, he just, I mean, he just bragged about how much food he could eat, his iron stomach. We would, I'm not kidding. Like, I, I've got someone in the, in the congregation right now who's with me sitting at the table. You can ask him after to affirm this. We'd get like, 15 brownies and put it on a plate and then dump soft serve ice cream on it and he would just pound the whole thing we'd like we'd go get it we'd be like josh will you eat this he uh, probably shouldn't say his name he's yeah he'd be like yeah i'll eat this and he'd just pound it he'd eat the entire thing and he did this like three or four times a week and so then um so i, I say all that to say he wasn't preparing the way he was supposed to and then he goes to uh, run in a, a track meet, and you have to understand, this guy, we ran 8Ks in college, so that's like f almost five miles. His like 5K split would be like 16 minutes or something. 
okay? He goes to a, a, a track race in college. Tracks are faster. It's faster than a cross-country course. It's perfect, like, yeah, it's just, it's just faster. You go in a circle, it's perfect footing and everything. After this season of his life, he pumps out a 1730. So this, this dude is running like 16s in his like split for a five mile race. But because of his preparation, when it came time to the race, he runs a 1730. Still really good, but terrible for him. I say all that to say, if race day comes, right, if persecution day comes, if the moment comes where we're facing persecution and we haven't been doing it consistently in the times of comfort, we're not going to do it when it's time to race. As Christians, we know that persecution and various trials are coming, and our only hope is steadfastness and perseverance in God. And it's God who gives us that. We can't do it on our own. And because this comes from God, when we do face persecution and we do persevere, it ultimately brings glory to God. And we see this again in the rest of the chapter. So I'm going to read... 16 through 23, and then I'm just going to summarize a couple verses in the middle there, and I'm going to, I'm going to do just a quick aside to talk about those verses, and then we'll finish and we'll read uh, 25 through 28. So, 16 through 23. Then the, king commanded, then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And the stone was brought and laid on the, mouth of, on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, and nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No, diver, no diversions were brought to him, and sleep fed, fled from him. Then at daybreak, then, sorry, then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. So in the next section, you can read it if you want. Next section, the king has the um, men who plotted against Daniel, their wives and their children thrown into the pit of lions. And I just want to say that in Scripture, when you read Scripture, there's prescriptive Scripture and there's descriptive Scripture. Right? There's prescriptive means do this, and descriptive means this happened. Simple as I can break it down. And we know, as Christians, if you've read Romans 12, 19, it says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We know that if we face persecution and we, God sustains us through it and we have the chance to revenge anyone who persecutes us. That's not what we're supposed to do. That's not at all what we're supposed to do. As Christians, we're called to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute you, right? This section right here of 
the families being thrown into the pit of lions is descriptive. The king chose to do this, right? This wasn't a command by God or whatever. This is just what the king chose to do, and it happened, so Daniel wrote it down. We are not at all saying you should do this to your enemies. Just want to make that aside. Prescriptive, descriptive. Do it, it happened. I'm writing it down. Um, so then 25 through 27, or sorry, through 28. Then King Darius wrote to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of lions, so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and then the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is one of the most well-known passages in the Bible, especially this section right here. Daniel's faithful to God, and because he's faithful to God, he gets thrown into a den of lions. God is then able to show his glory by rescuing him from that, which would otherwise have been certain death. I don't know about you, but if I was thrown in a den of lions, I would probably die. Um, because of this, we see another king glorify God. We saw this with Nebuchadnezzar. Now, we don't know how long this lasts for Darius, right? Nebuchadnezzar oftentimes paid lip service to God after he saw him do something incredible, and it didn't last. In fact, if you look at kind of the rise and, and fall of Persia, it probably didn't last. I don't, Persia wasn't a Christian empire. However, because of Daniel's faithfulness, even through persecution, God is glorified. And it's not just the fact, right? It's not just the fact that Daniel was saved that brings glory to God. That is incredible, right? Shutting the mouths of lions, that's awesome. I mean, God created them, so I'd assume he'd be able to do it. But the fact that Daniel was faithful brings glory to God. Because Daniel could have never done that without God, right? Even the faithfulness through persecution. We're not always promised to be saved from the lions. When we face persecution, there's not a guarantee that you're not going to get fired from your job if you stand up for what's right. There's no guarantee that your relationships will be saved. There's no guarantee that physical harm won't come to you. But the biggest thing that glorifies God is our faithfulness. Because on our own, we could never be faithful. You and me could never be faithful. But through Christ, we can. And ultimately, it points to the most, the culmination of God's glory, right? Daniel is thrown in a den of lions. It's sealed by a stone, and God saves him from death. That's pretty cool. But Christ came. He chose to go into a tomb. That tomb was sealed by a stone, and he beat death. That's the pinnacle of God's glory. And we can only be faithful through persecution if we have Christ. If, we, if our faith is in Christ, and because of what Christ has done, we are relying on the Spirit, then and only then are we faithful. We talked about Philippians. We talked about that passage in Philippians 2, but before that, a couple of verses before that, there's a word in Philippians 2.12, therefore, right? which means that passage that we talked about, we're called to be lights in a crooked and twisted generation. There's a, there's, a, there's a reason for that. Therefore, be these lights. So let's take a look. 
Philippians 2, 2, 5 through 11. Why are we supposed to be these lights? Why, right? Therefore, do this. What is the therefore referring to? Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, so that, every, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Right, that's what that word's referring to. Be lights in a twisted and crooked generation because of Christ. Because Christ emptied himself. Because Christ became a servant. Because he faced death, he beat death, he rose again and was exalted. Be lights. Point to Christ no matter the cost. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we look at another passage in Daniel, and yet again, we see Daniel being faithful. Help our focus not to be on Daniel, but God, on you. God, the one who gives us steadfastness, the one who allows us to be calm in the midst of persecution, God, the one who allows us to, be per per to persevere. God, help our eyes to be focused on you. God, through your grace, as you give us new hearts and a new spirit, I pray that we would go out into the world and we would be lights, no matter the cost. God, we're thankful that whatever trial or persecution comes our way, you are with us. And God, help us to allow those times to bring glory to you. We love you, Lord. Amen.